Hey everyone, Cody here. How would you like a chance to win some free stuff from American Hauntings and help us improve the show at the same time? We're giving away a gift basket fully stocked by Lisa to one lucky listener. All you have to do is take a short survey to help us improve the show as we plan for season four. Go to bit.ly slash American Hauntings survey to find out more. Again, that's bit.ly slash American Hauntings survey. And now on with the show. Another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are getting close to the conclusion of our third season, Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, well, you've missed a lot because this season is almost over. So what you need to do is go back to episode 36 and start the season from there. That's the beginning of the Axeman's Midwest crime spree, and we use the entire season to explore how the killer's horrific crimes affected the railroad towns of the region, especially Villisca, Iowa. We're nearing the end of the line, so hang on to your hatchet as we begin the second to last episode of Murdered in Their Beds. On June 9, 1912, our transient butcher carried out his most famous crime in Villisca, Iowa. We've spent weeks, well, months really, examining every detail of this story, and yet when we look back today at the Villisca murders, as well as the other locations across the Midwest during the period, we find that the case offers no more clues about the identity of the killer or his motives than it did to the authorities in 1912. By all accounts, the Moors were well-liked and seemed to get along with just about everyone. There seemed to be no reason why anyone would want them dead or why anyone would have been targeting Joseph Stillinger by killing his daughters. The only person in town who seemed to have even a slight grudge against any of the victims was Frank Jones. And despite the campaign concocted against him by James Wilkerson, the idea that he would kill someone over a business dispute, even if there was a dispute, and Frank maintained there wasn't, was almost laughable. But Frank Jones was the suspect, and business was the motive, and that seemed to appeal to the people of Villisca. It was something they could understand. Frank Jones had killed J.B. Moore because of jealousy and greed. It was that simple. And when you add in lust and the alleged affair between Dona Jones and J.B. Moore, you have a biblical motive that the average person could really sink his teeth into. Unfortunately, though, things were not that simple. The residents of Villisca, just like the residents of the other small towns where the Axeman came calling, wanted closure. An easy remedy for the horror in their midst. They didn't want to consider something even more horrific and sinister had taken place, that the murders were the work of a random stranger with a motive that none of them could understand. In the days that followed the Villisca murders, there were at least four suspects mentioned in every edition of the paper. However, leads were quickly exhausted, alibis were established, and the possibilities began to dwindle. 
The local police, state investigators, private detectives who were working for pay, and even amateur detectives hoping to collect a reward all combed the town and the surrounding region, following every clue that was presented. Dozens of theories were pursued, but each time the investigation seemed to be getting close to a breakthrough, it all fell apart again. On the second day after the discovery of the murders, the clairvoyant from nearby Red Oak, Auntie Hamilton, made her views known in the newspaper. Using what she called her occult powers, she proclaimed the killer to be a large man with a dark mustache, roughly dressed and wearing a slouch hat. She predicted he would give himself up in two weeks. She also foretold, not realizing the axe had been left at the scene, that the murder weapon would be found near a slaughterhouse. The local newspapers didn't take her seriously, but other people did. Ross Moore got a couple of men to go with him to look for clues at the abandoned slaughterhouse on the banks of the East Nottoway River, but, well, as we know, there was nothing there that had any connection to the murders. Two early suspects were disgruntled relatives of the Moores. Both of them were living out of state, and it was easily established they had not been in Iowa at the time of the murders. Among others who attracted attention that first summer was a man named Charles B. Soward, a stranger who did nothing but buy an and Shit. Among others who attracted attention that first summer was a man named Charles B. Soward, a stranger who did nothing but buy a hand axe in nearby Clarinda. It would seem odd that something so simple could draw attention, but not in the light of the frenzy and suspicion and speculation that swept the countryside immediately after the murders. In addition, Soward's behavior was, well, a bit on the unusual side. He was seen sharpening the axe as he walked down the street, and a few people claimed that he'd made some disturbing remarks. He spoke about the Velisca murder, saying that it would have been no trick at all to plan the crime— Quote, crack the victims over the head and then go to the river and wash off the blood. Sard was quickly arrested and began telling authorities a pretty bizarre story. He was, he claimed, head chief of the U.S. Indian Police and showed them a badge. He said that he had been appointed by a judge named C.A. Hanford in Seattle, Washington, and had a staff of 50,000 men who worked for him. The authorities learned that there actually had been a Judge Hanford in Seattle, but that he had recently resigned after being impeached and they weren't able to reach him. And there was, and I'm sure you're not surprised by this, no such thing as the U.S. Indian police. Sour turned out to be the cousin of Dr. Erastus T. Ferens of Clorinda, which I'm sure was a little embarrassing to the physician. He quickly told the press that his cousin was insane and that he hadn't seen him for 20 years or more, which probably wasn't true since they lived in the same small town. But whatever his mental state, Sour seemed to enjoy the attention he was getting. He was held on a federal charge and was transferred to Union County. While in jail, he made jokes, answered questions with questions, and generally made a fool out of anyone who tried to interrogate him. Among the detectives who interviewed Sard was Thomas O'Leary, one of the only detectives involved in the Vliss case who actually did anything. He later told newspapers he didn't think the man had anything to do with the murders. Sard baited his interrogators, but it was soon established that he was in Colorado when the murders occurred, 500 miles from Villisca, and could not have committed them. Another suspect that summer was a man named Andy Sawyer, who came to the attention of the authorities by way of a Burlington Railroad bridge foreman named Thomas Dwyer. He was convinced that Sawyer had committed the murders and contacted Sheriff Jackson in late June 1912, and the story he told was a plausible one. Dwyer said that on the Monday after the murder, Sawyer approached him in Creston looking for work. He said that Sawyer was wet to the knees as if he'd been wading in the river and his shoes were covered with mud. Sawyer told him he was good with an axe and was given the job of sharpening piles, which were timber pieces used for the bases of wooden railroad bridges. 
By late afternoon or evening, Sawyer was talking about the murders and didn't seem to want to talk about anything else. He told Dwyer he'd been in Villisca on Sunday night and wondered if he might be a suspect. Dwyer said that Sawyer was the fastest man with an axe he'd ever seen. He spent a lot of time sharpening it and even took it to bed with him at night. A few days after Sawyer started with the crew, Dwyer saw him bent over, rubbing his head with both hands. Dwyer approached him from behind, and although he didn't mean to, he startled the other man. Sawyer leaped to his feet and shouted, I'll cut your goddamn heads off, and began wildly swinging his axe. Dwyer had seen enough. He went to Red Oak and talked to Sheriff Jackson, who went looking for the itinerant railroad worker. He found Sawyer with a railroad crew in Cumberland, called him aside, and asked him a few questions. Sawyer denied that he was involved in the crime. He said he'd hopped a freight train from Osceola, about 60 miles east of Villisca, and had ridden it to Creston on the night the murders took place. He spent the night in Creston and on Monday morning asked Dwyer for a job. He hadn't been in Villisca at all, he said. He heard about the murders in the newspaper and was only interested because he'd once lived near Villisca and knew some extended members of the Moore family. Jackson heard him out, didn't think there was anything worth pursuing, and went back to Red Oak. After Jackson left, Sawyer was allegedly very agitated. He returned to the boxcar where the crew slept, gathered his belongings, and walked away. Dwyer, meanwhile, was pretty unhappy with the lack of an investigation and took his story to the newspaper, which printed his belief that Sawyer was the killer. Sheriff Jackson didn't know where Sawyer had gone and hadn't checked his alibi, so he took some heat over that. Several weeks passed before Thomas O'Leary finally traced Sawyer to a farm near Lark, North Dakota, but it was not until the fall of 1912 that Montgomery County Attorney William Ratcliffe took a Burns detective named W.S. Gordon with him to interview Andy Sawyer. They traveled by train and then rented a horse and buggy to make the last leg of the trip to the isolated little town. Their weather was cold in early October and rain turned to sleep before they arrived at the small tar paper shack where Sawyer lived with his family. He wasn't home when they arrived, but Sawyer's wife, according to Gordon's report, fainted when she saw them. After she recovered, she told them where Sawyer was. They found a place to stay the night and tracked him down the next day. He gave a more detailed statement than he'd given to Sheriff Jackson, and the two investigators returned to Iowa to check out his story. Sawyer's account was so seedy that it had to be the truth. He left his wife the previous spring, went to Des Moines, got drunk, was arrested, was thrown in a pest house, was released, spent a few nights with a prostitute, rode the rails, was run out of Osceola by the police, and eventually arrived in Creston on Sunday, June 9th. Gordon set about verifying the story, and while much of it couldn't be confirmed, he was able to place Sawyer in some of the places he claimed he was in. Gordon soon became convinced that Sawyer could not have been in Villisca on the night of the murders, and another suspect was ruled out. But, you know, that was okay. There were lots of others to choose from. In fact, lunatics seemed to be everywhere that summer. Harlan Burge, a farmer from nearby Gravity, came to see the authorities in Villisca late that summer to show them some threatening letters he'd received. Four years earlier, Burge had hired a man named John Boland to help him with the corn picking. Burge did not get to know Boland well and had no idea where he lived and didn't see him again until January 1912. On that winter's day, Boland came to see Burge and accused his startled former employer of trying to hypnotize him. At first, Burge didn't recognize him, but when Boland told him that he'd once worked for him, Burge then recalled the hired hand. Boland asked again why Burge was trying to hypnotize him, and the farmer insisted that he wasn't. Boland seemed satisfied with that response and drove away in his buggy. That was the last that Burge heard from him until a month after the murders. At that time, he received a 40-page letter 
from Bolin, followed by another a few days later. Both letters rambled on about the, quote, Garden of Paradise being cast out of the east door of the temple, a mark to be placed on the head of the righteous to prevent them from being slain, and more, for page after page after page. The letter was postmarked Nebraska City, Nebraska, so the well-traveled Detective O'Leary set out to make sure the man had not been in Villisca at the time of the murders. He wasn't. Another odd letter was sent to Sheriff Bradshaw of Ellsworth, Kansas, which he copied and sent to Sheriff Jackson. The letter read, quote, now bear with me on this one. Sorry, you students of crime are puzzled about the axemen according to Matthew 3rd chapter 10th verse and Josiah 9th chapter 24th verse. The axe users, viz. the Gideonites, are inhabitants of Lincoln, Nebraska, and surroundings of the country and of the same city. If you will follow my advice, examine all Nebraska people living in your city, and if you fail to find the axemen, I may write again. Be sure and do what I'm telling you, and you will find your man. The above is a prophecy that went into force since 1911, May the 18th, and it will continue. Axemen for four years, after four years, then the criminals will use fire to destroy human life. Yours for humanity and God. The letter was signed, Masar Shalal Rash Boss. Whoa. Sheriff Jackson heard from people who recalled the assault conviction of a man named Joe Briggs in Page County seven years before. Someone had the idea that J.B. Moore had identified a knife belonging to Briggs, which led to his conviction. Briggs, as the story went, had been released a few days before the murders and had sworn revenge. Another lead given to Sheriff Jackson had to do with the only murder that had ever taken place in Villisca before the summer of 1912. A man named W.H. Thiel had become aware of his wife's relationship with a traveling man and had stabbed her to death. He was found guilty, but because of the circumstances, he was given jail time rather than being hanged. A rumor in the summer of 1912 was that J.B. Moore had been on the Thiel jury and that Thiel had promised to get back at the jurors. According to the story, he'd escaped a couple of days before the murders occurred. Jackson checked out both stories, but of course, neither turned out to be true. Detective O'Leary had dozens, perhaps hundreds, of letters to read during his investigation. He had to look over every one of them, deciphering some, discarding others, and determining what should be done about the information they contained. For weeks after the murders, they flooded into the post office at Villisca and Red Oak. Most of them were written by people who sincerely thought they had information that would help the case. Others were from psychics, religious lunatics, and cranks. O'Leary read them all, making notes on everything that warranted a follow-up. It was a tedious job. Just figuring out the handwriting on some of them was a challenge. Several letters blamed the crime on a gang of African Americans who were killing white Midwesterners as vengeance for lynchings that were occurring in the South. Other letters, such as the one connecting the crimes to the, quote, whirlwinds of Ezekiel, reinforced the theory held by some, including Sheriff Jackson, that a group of religious fanatics were responsible for the crime. This isn't as far-fetched as we might think today. The early 1900s in America was a time when a great number of religious cults, sects, and movements began to form, alarming the reserved Baptist, Presbyterians, and Methodists of the country's small towns and farm communities. The presence of the Holy Rollers in Villisca on the night of the murder signaled to many local residents that perhaps some sort of murderous religious nuts had been at work. O'Leary had particular interest in the whirlwinds of Ezekiel letter. It was postmarked from Kansas where other axe murders had taken place and rambled on at length about scripture, vengeance, and axes. The writer identified himself as the, quote, mistree of life 
and those are all separate words, and wrote that death upon earth is errant. I don't know what that means either. Other passages read, quote, If you listen to the voice in my words, you will find me. And quote, The neighborhood, the press where these killings take place, seldom record or take note of the route, for God will show man. It is murder without money incentives that excites us. Are those in murder without money behind it is necessarily insane. The whirlwinds of Ezekiel, blessed art thou, Veliska. God's hand touches thou as Christ was murdered upon the cross of the world, headed down on the cross of nation. It is only more for the errant still in you. Sweet babes hear the shaking of a nation, sacrifice of heaven. The letter was signed Eli Eloi. O'Leary puzzled over some of the words in the letter, believing that if the writer was not the killer, he had some knowledge of the crimes. O'Leary was one of the proponents of the idea that the killer had murdered before in Kansas, Colorado Springs, and elsewhere. He felt the words show man were a play on the name showman. The family had been murdered in their beds in Ellsworth, Kansas in 1911 by someone wielding an axe. He felt more referred to the Moore family and that Miss Tree of Life and Nay Shun were obvious, but he never figured out the meaning of the word errant. No additional letter came from the writer and the whirlwinds of Ezekiel were eventually forgotten. In time, the principal suspects in the case became a wealthy banker and a politician and a deranged minister with a taste for young girls. Despite what many believed was strong evidence against them, some of the detectives who worked the case were unable to ignore other similar killings that had occurred in the Midwest around the same time as the Velisca murders, which we detailed throughout this season of the podcast. It is my belief that a serial killer was at work in the Midwest at the time. In those days, such terminology was not used, but one newspaper referred to a transient butcher. This is a likely explanation behind the crimes, and I believe the man who committed the other murders also killed the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters. Throughout this season, I referred to him as Billy the Axeman, taking my cue from a newspaper story that called him that. Despite the humorous name, there was nothing funny about this harbinger of death, who traveled by rail throughout the Midwestern states, bringing horror along with him. I believe this killer visited Velisca in June 1912. I also believe he was not the only person to enter the Moore house on the night of June 9th and the early morning hours of June 10th. Our creepy little minister, Reverend Kelly, was also there. He wasn't the killer, but he was certainly a part of the terrible events that happened. On March 21, 1911, a series of bloody axe murders began in San Antonio, Texas. Like a plague, the killer traveled the Midwest, likely by rail, seeking victims in Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa. He moved silently, leaving almost no trace behind. Each of the murder sites was remarkably similar to the next, and the crimes were carried out in almost exactly the same way. The transient butcher murdered his victims in their beds, crushing their skulls with an axe. The bodies were covered, the windows draped, and the lamps were found with glass chimneys removed. In some cases, he washed up after his grim task. Other times, he consumed food found in the cupboards. He continued to kill until 1914, when he apparently vanished without a trace. 
The newspapers called the killer Billy the Axeman, which is the closest we have ever had to giving him a name. His true identity has never been learned, but there were several attempts to identify him. There were a number of detectives and police officials who believed that a serial murderer was responsible not only for the crimes in Villisca, but for the other Midwest murders too. Each one of them was hot on the trail for the killer for a time, although in the end, he was never captured. The Axeman was first identified by the police in the summer of 1912. They believed the killer was an escaped lunatic named Galasco Encevi, who had been arrested in early 1910 for allegedly killing a former schoolteacher named Jenny Cleghorn in Chicago's Inglewood neighborhood. In January, her beheaded corpse was found on the street, and Encevi had confessed to the crime, or at least he'd babbled, yes, I killed her, I killed her, but it wasn't my fault. He was arrested and committed to an insane asylum from which he later escaped. Chicago Assistant Chief of Police Herman Schutler, a well-known and experienced officer who had been involved in the famous Lutgert murder case in 1897, wrote a letter addressed to the Villisca City Marshal about Enchevy and suggested that he might be the transient butcher that had been killing people throughout the Midwest. Schutler had been researching in Chevy and noted that the 1911 and 1912 murders occurred after he escaped from the asylum. He wrote, quote, In every case, the murderer seems to be one man, unlocks the door to enter and fastens it after the crime, proceeding as quietly as possible, just like in Chevy did. I believe in Chevy is traveling all over the countryside killing people. He is a maniac that changes with the moon. He loses control of himself and is irresponsible. There were some things to like about Enchevy as a suspect. He had committed an earlier crime. He was from the Midwest. He was an escapee from an asylum, and no one seemed to know his whereabouts. There was also speculation about why the articles of clothing in Villisca and the other murder scenes had been draped over windows and mirrors. Some believed that it was a superstition from Romania or Bulgaria, stemming from the idea that if you saw your own reflection in a room where a dead person lay, you would also soon die. People from Eastern Europe, like Enchevy, would often pull down window shades and cover mirrors while the dead lay in state. In addition, Enchevy was obviously insane, as many investigators believe the Axeman was. But was Enchevy too insane to have gotten away with so many murders? Yeah, I believe he was. I also believe that Captain Schutler was wrong in his analysis of the Axeman being a crazed, out-of-control killer. The murders were all very organized, and while obviously the work of a psychopath, they were not the work of a disorganized one, as in Chevy certainly was. The authorities in Chicago and Villista would have definitely liked to have talked to in Chevy, even though hard evidence linking to the murders was basically non-existent, but he was never found. Eventually, he was forgotten. Another Billy the Axeman suspect was a man named Henry Lee Moore. Yes, I know, another person named Moore, but he was not related to the Velisca victims. I mentioned him briefly earlier in the season, but basically, he was convicted of the axe murders of his mother and grandmother in December 1912, just months after the Velisca murders occurred. There was at least one detective who believed that Moore was responsible for the bloody rampage of death that wreaked havoc across the Midwest, including the slaughter in Velisca. An unbalanced man who was prone to violent rages, Moore was prosecuted in December 1912 for the two murders in Columbia, Missouri. The possible connection between Moore and the earlier murders was made after authorities in Villisca requested federal assistance in investigating the June 1912 massacre. The police had the savaged bodies of the Moores and the Stillinger girls but had no clues or direction for their investigation. A federal officer, Matthew McLowry, was assigned to the case. You might remember his less than illustrious arrival in Villisca after the murders. When he got to town, he was so drunk that Dr. Lindquist forced him to leave the Moore house and go to his hotel to sleep it off. In spite of that, 
He was an actual detective, unlike so many others in town at the time, and an expert in fingerprinting. He didn't find the clues he hoped to find at the Moore house, but he did come to believe that the murders in Villisca were not unique. He believed they connected to the murders in Colorado Springs, to the Dawson family in Illinois, the Showman murders in Kansas. At that time, no one knew about San Antonio. Just five days before the carnage in Villisca, the Hudsons were murdered in Kansas. These murders were carried out in the same way as the earlier crimes, and the scene seemed to be duplicated again in Villisca a short time later. No suspect had ever been identified in any of the killings, and rumors of a romance angle in the Hudson case produced no leads. McLowry believed that he was dealing with a transient maniac after the Villisca murders, but even so, clues were in short supply. Matthew McLowry was a bit of an anomaly among the investigators of his day. His father was the warden of the Leavenworth Penitentiary and his brother was in charge of the Iowa State Reformatory. He started his career as a records clerk at Leavenworth and went on to lead the U.S. Department of Justice's Bureau of Criminal Identification when it was moved to the penitentiary in 1907 to serve as the nation's repository for fingerprint evidence. He became a special agent for the Department of Justice, which was a forerunner to today's FBI, and studied the very first fingerprint system with its creator in France. McLowry investigated the case, but it was a coincidence that pointed him in the direction of Henry Moore. Prison officials in Missouri sent a letter to Leavenworth to ask about Henry Moore's time spent at the Kansas Reformatory. Moore was now serving a life sentence in Missouri for the December 1912 murders, and McLowry's father informed his son of the imprisoned axe murderer. After comparing the evidence in all the cases, capped by interviews with Moore, McLowry announced on May 9, 1913, that the books had been closed on 23 Midwestern homicides. He theorized that Moore was responsible for the crimes in Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa, and based on the similarities between the crime scenes and the fact that the killings had started after Moore's release from the Kansas Reformatory in 1911, and they stopped after his imprisonment in Missouri. Henry Moore had been born November 1, 1874 in Boone County, Missouri, and was the oldest son of Enoch and Georgia Ann Wilson Moore. Enoch Moore was a farmer and Civil War veteran, and Georgia supported herself in later years as a nurse for families in the Columbia area. In the 1900 census, Henry Lee Moore was listed as a farmhand living in Franklin County, Iowa, with a family named Vox, which included a young daughter named Martha. By 1910, the Voxes had moved to northern Wisconsin, taking Martha and her daughter, Edna, with them. Martha was listed in the census as a widow, although it's likely that her daughter had been fathered by Henry Moore. Moore was not listed in the 1910 census because he was awaiting incarceration in Sedgwick County, Kansas, on a forgery charge. Even though he was 35, he convinced the authorities he was much younger and was sentenced to the Kansas Reformatory School in Hutchison. He was released from the reformatory on April 26, 1911, making it theoretically possible for him to have committed the crimes that started in Colorado Springs in September 1911, although not the San Antonio murders, which no one knew about at the time anyway. Testimony at Moore's trial indicated that he lived with his mother and grandmother in Missouri during the winter of 1911 and the summer of 1912 before taking a job with the railroad. His employment with the railroad could have afforded him the chance to travel around the country killing people, but in truth, he didn't start working for the Wabash Railroad until September 1912, long after most of the murders had occurred. The other big problem with McClowry's theory was that he stated the murder stopped after Moore's arrest in 1912, but this completely left out the nearly identical murders in Blue Island, Illinois in 1914. Henry Moore from prison denied any involvement in the other crimes. 
Other law enforcement officials did not seem to put much stock in McLowry's theory. Officials in Columbia, Missouri did not think Moorhead was connected to the other murders. Thomas O'Leary, who investigated the Vliska case, interviewed Moore in prison and after his arrest to determine if he had anything to do with the Iowa murders. He went away believing Moore was not the killer. As he wrote to Henry Sampson, quote, As you are no doubt aware, there was absolutely no connection between the Columbia and Vallisca murders, except that an axe was used in both cases, and, well, the names were the same. Henry Moore was undoubtedly a murderer, but he was no transient butcher. He was guilty of an axe murder, but the crime in Columbia was so poorly executed that he was immediately arrested and easily convicted. Was it likely that a man accused of killing people in cities across the Midwest and vanishing without a trace would return home and kill his remaining family members in such a haphazard and sloppy way? I don't think so. Moore spent 36 years in prison before being paroled on December 2nd, 1949. He was 82 years old and had lived for eight years at the Salvation Army Men's Center in St. Louis, working as a tailor and earning $40 a month when the governor commuted his sentence in 1956. When and where he died remains a mystery. The last Billy the Axeman suspect to emerge was the only one tied to the Blue Island murders in 1914. Although William Mansfield was investigated, he was eventually cleared despite Detective Wilkerson's efforts to hang the crime on him. A year after the murders took place, another suspect came to light. In July 1915, a man was arrested in Buffalo, New York, who confessed to the Mislik murders. His name was Casimir Arizuski, and he'd once boarded with the Mislik family. He was alleged to be mentally ill, and after making advances toward the Mislik's daughter and failing to pay his rent, he was thrown out. He dropped out of sight soon after. After his arrest, Arizuski told the police that he'd roamed the country both before and after the murders, traveling by rail and drifting aimlessly. According to the time range of the murders, this would have made it possible for him to be the Axeman, although most likely he wasn't. Once again, the Axeman was an organized killer, and while insane, it's likely that no one would have ever suspected he was a bloodthirsty maniac. The same thing couldn't have been said for Arizuski. One day, he simply walked into a police station in Buffalo, New York, and confessed to the Mislik murders. Two Chicago detectives and the mayor of Blue Island traveled to New York and brought him back, intent on learning if he was connected to the string of other murders that had been taking place since 1911. If he was, he never told them. He was judged to be insane and incompetent to stand trial. He was committed to a mental asylum in 1915, and after that, well, he vanished into history, leaving another mystery in his wake. In time, the idea that a transient murder was responsible for the Midwest murders, including Velisca, began to fade in popularity. In Iowa, in the years that followed, most people were happy to believe that Reverend Kelly committed the Velisca murders or that Frank Jones was somehow involved. Kelly confessed to the murders, but was later acquitted, and Jones denied any involvement in the crimes until the day he died. Over the years, the information collected by detectives like Thomas O'Leary and Matthew McLowry was largely forgotten. McLowry always maintained that Henry Moore was responsible for the murders, and while I believe he was wrong, I do believe that his investigation was on the right track. He just had the wrong suspect. The murders in Villisca remain officially unsolved. They will always stay that way. After more than a century, there's no way that we can ever learn the identity of the killer. But this doesn't mean we can never know what happened in Villisca. We just can't know who did it. I have a theory of what I believe happened in the Moore House on the night of June 9th, 1912. It's only my theory. And agree or disagree, I think you'll find that the pieces fit. It's not a pleasant theory to listen to. And if you have children listening to this episode, you might want to turn it off and listen later. 
I want to walk you step by step through what happened that night, and I think when you hear it, you'll understand why the Moore House is called one of the most haunted houses in America today. I can give you my idea of what happened in the Morehouse that night in June 1912, but only the killer himself could say for sure what happened. Well, I should take that back. There was one other man who also knew what happened, but he could never fully reveal the secret. He couldn't because if he had, he would have gone to prison, a fate that he narrowly avoided anyway. Because we'll never know for certain what follows is supposition. I've never claimed to be an expert on the Velisca murders. I've pursued the facts in the case for many years and have also studied not only historical crime, but scores of axe murders ranging from the late 1800s to the 1920s, searching for links, clues, and theories about the crimes. Based on my own research and more than a dozen visits to the Moore House, I've tried to put together what I think occurred that night, from the murders themselves to the events that followed, which would lead to Reverend Kelly being placed on trial for murders he didn't commit. So what happened on June 9th? I believe that the killer, whom I'll just refer to here as Billy because I believe that he was the transient butcher who was also responsible for murders in Texas, Colorado, Kansas, and Illinois, entered the house through the back door, which opened into the kitchen. Why did he choose the Moore house? We'll never know. None of the murders seemed to have a motive behind them. The families who were murdered had no enemies. No one had a grudge against them, and they appeared to be chosen at random. I'm convinced that the killer traveled by rail. All the towns where he killed were railroad towns, offering easy access into the community and an easy escape route. Villisca was no exception. The night of June 9th was perfect for a murder. As with most of the other cases, it was a Sunday night. Why the killer chose Sundays is unknown, but again, Villisca was no exception. What made this night even better was the fact that the streets were unlit thanks to the dispute with the local utility company. This made the killer's work even easier. We don't know why he chose the Moors, but it's likely that Billy had reasons all his own. Reasons that would perhaps make no sense to an ordinary person. Billy entered the house through the back door, and after prowling through the kitchen, saw the narrow stairway that led to the upper floor. He carried an axe that he found in the backyard into the house with him, and as was his usual method, he would later leave it behind at the scene. As he entered the kitchen, he picked up an oil lamp from the table. It was a common design that could be found in hundreds of thousands of homes across the Midwest. He quietly lit the lamp, turning the wick down as low as it would go. Billy silently climbed the wooden stairs without disturbing anyone in the house. He was used to small houses. In every previous murder, the house had been small and no one heard anything. He knew how to be quiet. When he reached the top of the staircase, he could see the bed where J.B. and Sarah Moore were sleeping through the wooden railings. Before he entered the bedroom at the top of the stairs, he removed the glass chimney from the oil lamp. The dull light barely illuminated the scene, but Billy's eyes were used to the darkness, and he could see everything he needed to see. The stairs turned sharply to the left, and moments later, he was standing at the foot of the bed. J.B. Moore was murdered first. He was the only victim struck by the sharp edge of the axe. It was necessary for the man of the house to be killed first. He was the one most capable of fighting back. Moore was struck with savage ferocity once, 
twice. Billy swung so hard that the backswing of the axe hit the ceiling. JB never stirred. He died instantly from the blows. The blows themselves brought only the sound of a solid strike like that of a melon being smashed on a sidewalk. Even so, it was likely loud enough to cause Sarah to wake up. She was a mother, used to coming out of a dead sleep when her children cried out from a bad dream. She undoubtedly awoke when her husband was killed, but the axeman was prepared. Before she could scream, he brought the heavy head of the axe down on her skull. He hit her again and again until Sarah, like her husband, was dead. Using the dim light of the lamp, Billy then crept to the south upstairs bedroom where the children were sleeping. There were three beds in the room. Two of the children slept together, and the two others slept in separate beds. One by one, the murder bludgeoned them all to death with the flat side of the axe, swinging and pounding as blood spattered the walls, the floor, and even the ceiling. Their small skulls were fractured savagely, and all were killed without awakening the others. When he was finished, Billy pulled the sheets of the beds as high as they would go, carefully covering the faces and bodies of the dead. This was his ritual, and he performed it just as he had done at the murder houses in Texas, Colorado, Kansas, and Illinois. When he was finished in the children's room, he returned to the bed where J.B. and Sarah lay. He stepped next to the bed, possibly accidentally moving one of Sarah's shoes that had been filling with the blood dripping from her body. He looked down at the bodies that he'd destroyed, and as he'd done in the children's room, he drew the bed sheets over their faces. He left his lamp on the floor under the dresser. He had no more need of it. His work was done. He killed them all, he believed, and now he could wash himself before setting off into the night. The axeman descended the stairs into the kitchen and using the pump on the sink, he filled a pan with water with which to wash the blood from his hands and face. He dipped his hands into the water and turning it a pinkish red color. Now he needed food. It didn't take him long to put together the pieces for a meal. He placed a plate on the table and prepared to sit down. He still had hours before the sun rose and he would be well on his way before then. But as he pulled out a chair and prepared to sit down, he heard a rustle of movement from the front of the house. There was someone else there, someone else who needed to be punished. He retrieved a second lamp, lit the wick, rolling it down until the light could barely be seen. Billy picked up the axe and silently crossed the kitchen and entered the front parlor. To the right was a doorway leading to a small downstairs bedroom, the room where Catherine Moore usually slept. When he entered the room, he found two small forms sleeping on the bed. He removed the chimney from the lamp, dulling its glow, and looked down at the two sleeping girls. He placed the lamp on the floor, hefted the axe, and dealt another series of horrific blows. The two girls had also been punished. He pulled the bed sheets up over their bodies and leaned the bloody axe against the wall. His work was finally complete, but something was bothering him. Was it the fact that he had interrupted his work to wash and prepare to eat? Was it because his normally uncanny ability to search out all the occupants of the house had failed him when he did not realize there were two others in the house? The axeman was unsure unsettled and perhaps even had the distinct impression that he was being watched. As he felt the eyes of another crawl over him, he peered toward the darkened window that overlooked the backyard. Thin curtains hung over it, but he could plainly see the dark square of glass. He saw nothing outside, but could not shake the feeling that someone was there. He was so unsettled that he failed to cover the window. He left the food in the kitchen untouched and fled the house in silence. His bloody work was complete in this town, but there was more to be done elsewhere. The killer hopped aboard the next freight train passing through Villisca and vanished into the night. He never returned to southwest Iowa again. But Billy the Axeman was not the last person to enter the Moore house that night. 
Restless, unable to sleep, and driven by desires he could not begin to describe, Reverend Lynn George Kelly prowled the dark streets of Villisca. He was supposed to be sleeping in the guest room at Reverend Ewing's house, but it had been easy to slip away since the minister and his wife were sleeping in a tent in the backyard. Kelly wandered for a time, looking for a house with a lighted window. He couldn't help himself. He was a window peeper. He liked looking at women and girls as they changed their clothing or bathed or engaged in marital acts with their husbands and their lovers. He couldn't stop himself from doing this, and his desire sent him out into the midnight darkness of Villisca on June 9th. As he crept through an alleyway and into the backyard of the Moore house, he saw a faint light moving about in a downstairs window. He had no idea who lived there, but he probably felt a rush go through them when he realized that someone was awake and moving about. He managed to contain his excitement as he entered the yard and edged closer to the house. And then he heard a strange noise coming from inside. It was a solid thunking sound that was repeated several times. It seemed to be coming from upstairs, and Kelly waited in the darkness to see what was going on. He could hear the quiet sounds of someone moving inside. There were footsteps on a staircase, and then the quiet tread of boots in the kitchen. A faint light could be seen, and then it was gone. He moved closer to the house and leaned to peer into a downstairs window. It was a bedroom, and there looked to be two small forms on the bed. He felt his pulse quicken as one of them stirred. The figure shifted position and the sheet fell away. It was a girl, a young, ripe little beauty, exactly what Kelly had been looking for. He nearly groaned aloud. Moments later, a brighter light appeared in the doorway of the bedroom. The figure of a man approached, holding an oil lamp, but the light was so dim that Kelly was unable to get a good look at him. What he did see, however, was that the man was carrying an axe. The man placed the lamp down on the floor, swung the axe, and pounded it into the two girls sleeping on the bed. As he struck the first girl who was lying next to the wall, Kelly saw the second girl suddenly startle awake. Her hands flew up, but it was too late. The axe slammed into her skull and she collapsed back onto the bed. Kelly nearly screamed. His fist jammed into his mouth to keep him from crying out. He was terrified, but was unable to look away. When the dark figure inside the bedroom was finished, he leaned the axe against the wall and stood there for a moment, gazing at the small bodies on the bed. He covered them with a sheet and then stepped back. With a quick jerk, his head turned to look at the window. He seemed to look right at Kelly. The little preacher twisted away, ducking down below the sill, and he waited there, terrified he would be the next to be struck by the killer's axe. But no blow came. There was no cry of discovery, no panic from the killer. Kelly quickly hid, still worried that he might be discovered. A few moments later, he heard the soft clicker of the back door, and he watched as the killer slipped away into the night. A short time later, Reverend Kelly entered the house. One of the main reasons why Kelly became a suspect in the Villisca murders is that he seemed to know more about the murders than anyone aside from the killer should. He spoke about the murders on the train back home the following morning and told people about them before the bodies had even been discovered. If he was not the killer, it was reason that how could he know such things? Well, I'm convinced that Kelly saw the murders occur, or at least stumbled onto the scene as the killer was preparing to leave. It's a well-documented fact that Kelly was a window peeper. By his own admission, he was unable to sleep at the Ewing's house that night, so he walked around town. He was known for doing this in every town he lived in, and he likely saw more than his share of private scenes over the years. However, I'm going to say that on that night in Villisca, it was the first time he'd ever seen a murder. I believe that Kelly was either looking through the window when the Stillinger girls were killed, or he showed up soon after. Most likely, the sight of the dimly lit body of Lena Stillinger was too much for him to handle. I believe that Kelly entered the house and likely walked all through it, which is how he knew how many people had been murdered. 
It may have been Kelly who accidentally moved Sarah Moore's shoe instead of the killer, changing the flow of the blood spatter and disrupting the scene. But it was in the bedroom where the Stillinger girls had been sleeping that Kelly left his mark. Before that, I believe it was he who covered the mirrors in the house with clothing. The covering of the mirrors was unique to the Velisca scene. It hadn't been done in Texas, Colorado, Kansas, or Illinois. The killer had always covered the windows so that no one would see the light moving around in the darkened house from outside. This also made it longer for the murder scenes to be discovered. I believe that Kelly covered the windows in the bedroom when the Stillinger girls was killed using clothing from the closet. Their murders had happened last, and I believe the killer left before the windows were covered. Kelly wanted them to be covered so that no one would see inside. He couldn't stand for anyone to see what he was about to do. He covered the mirror so that he would not see his own reflection, and he couldn't help himself. But he didn't want to look into his own eyes while he was doing it, either. According to the report from Dr. Williams, Lena Stillinger was found on the outside edge of the bed. Her nightgown was pushed up and she had no underwear on. Her body was drawn into an odd position. She was on her right side, her legs sticking out sideways from the bed and her right arm and hand under her pillow. Dr. Williams believed that she had been turned that way after her death because blood had already seeped through the pillow and onto the bed before her arm had been placed there. There was also a smear of blood on the inside of her right knee, suggesting that someone had turned the body slightly after she'd been killed. Lena had not been raped, but the position of her body and the removal of her underwear led to the speculation that, quote, sexual perversion had occurred. Detective Toby, in a report that he wrote about interviewing Dr. Lindquist, the acting coroner in the case, was blunt about his suspicions concerning Lena Stillinger. The report read, quote, Dr. Lindquist of Stanton, the acting coroner in this case, was seen and interrogated. He states that in his opinion, the murder was the work of a sexual pervert. There was no semen in the vagina of Mrs. Moore or any indication of her having been assaulted, but that the condition of the body of the elder Stillinger girl was such as to indicate her having been fingered after rigor mortis had set in and that her vagina plainly showed this condition. It is not thought the penis entered the body, but that even after his death, this degenerate felt the body of the child during masturbation. The report went on to make some pretty amazing claims as to the sexual interests of the killer, and it seems doubtful that Dr. Lindquist actually used the words that Toby attributed to him. The doctor would have known that rigor mortis sets in a few hours after death, hardly within the hour or so that the killer, or in my theory, Reverend Kelly, would have been in the house. And in subsequent legal proceedings, even under direct questioning, Dr. Lindquist does not cite observing physical evidence of vaginal penetration after death. The sentiment of the statement, though, is consistent with Lindquist's opinion. He would maintain for the rest of his life that the act or acts of sexual perversion had taken place after the killings. As late as 1931, he was quoted in a newspaper interview as saying that the crime was committed by a sexual degenerate who, quote, indulged his orgy. He also said in the same interview that the man who was guilty had gone to England. While I don't agree that Kelly committed the murders, I do agree with Dr. Lindquist that he was the one who committed, quote, acts of sexual perversion after the killings. I believe that it was Kelly who moved Lena Stillinger's body and posed her so that her vagina was visible. When he did so, he got blood on his shirt, the same shirt that he took to that laundry in Council Bluffs. He may have used his fingers to touch her, but no one knows for sure. Besides, based on his later acts and requests for girls to pose nude for him, physical touching was not what excited him. Kelly like to look and to watch. There was nothing to suggest that he ever engaged in sex with any of them. Even his wife told a prosecutor in his murder trial that she and her husband had never, quote, engaged in normal sex. 
Kelly liked to look, and he likely touched himself. It's likely that he masturbated while looking at Lena Stillinger's nude body, which could also explain why he covered the mirrors in the room. As distasteful as this suggestion might be, we also have to consider the slab of bacon that was found sitting in the kitchen by investigators who later came to the house. It's possible that Kelly used grease from the bacon as lubricant when he masturbated, something that was actually, sorry, common during that era. As twisted as this explanation is, we now have a good idea about how Reverend Kelly came to know about the murders before the bodies were discovered and how he got blood on his shirt, which were the main reasons why he was suspected of the crime. It all makes sense, but it brings us no closer to knowing the identity of the killer. The Axeman, after the murders in Texas, Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa, simply disappeared into history, leaving death and despair in his wake. Unfortunately, this means that none of the murders will ever be solved, and we will forever wonder how the killer chose his victims, what motivated him to claim their lives, and where he vanished to when his bloody spree was over. I don't think Billy suddenly just stopped killing one day. His thirst for blood finally quenched. I believe he was forced to do so by death, suicide, or an accident, or by imprisonment. He may have finally snapped one day and killed himself, or he may have been killed while traveling the rails. Railroads and rail yards were dangerous places in the early 1900s, and thousands of accidents occurred every year. The Axeman could have easily been the victim of one. The penitentiary seems an unlikely ending for a man who carried out so many murders and never left a clue behind, but the insane asylum does not. I think it's likely, or even possible, one day Billy just fell apart and was locked away for good, his crimes to remain forever unknown to his captors. What became of him after all of this is unknown, but if I had to guess, I'd say that he's lying out there somewhere in the Midwest in a pauper's burial ground behind some long-forgotten insane asylum. Billy the Axeman, whatever happened, took its secrets with him to the grave. We have just one more episode of Murdered in the Beds, and it's the one you've all been waiting for. The stories of the hauntings that have plagued the Moore House and Villisca for so many years. We'll be back in two weeks with a plethora of scary tales and serve up a big helping of fright to finally put season three of the podcast to rest. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language 
better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay. I was wondering too, do you think that they make like the faucet handle and, and things in hotels so shiny and pick up fingerprints so much because people murder people in hotels? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good like, question. You know, do they want to make <laughs> it easy? Good, that's a good question. I kind of wonder about that too sometimes so when I, just I see them. that faucet off and I was like, oh my God. I know. Look it, at the fingerprints on like it. I know. so beautiful. Makes me, it always makes me nervous. I'm always like wiping it with the towel before right. I go just in case. It's a fingerprint expert's like dream. It is because you could, per, you could easily take a piece of tape and take yep. that fingerprint off there and put it anywhere you wanted to. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. We we say you've caught up with us in Season 3, but... If, if you're Maybe just they now, if you're just now catching up with this, we're pretty much done. So we're being we are down too. to the uh, uh, what do they call it? The the last, the second oh, to last, the penultimate. Yes, pen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pen, that word. Ultimate. That word. Um, episode of it. So yes. we are down to just one more episode after this. We are. And this was kind of a fun one, I have to say. What were the I others mean, fun, not fun? Well, no, they've they've all been fun, but this one was sort of fun in a. Um, 
casual way. Sure. I mean, this was an episode not that a trial. I could be, right. There were no trials involved. There were, I could be a little looser with this one because um, half the episode was me theorizing. <laughs> so yeah, I like it was kind of fun though. And it's I, also a I, good recap for, if, if people don't want to listen to the whole season, they can still get 75% of kind of get a what lot happened of to the one. story. With, with actually more, um, more suspects than we'd had that I'd mentioned at any point during the the season. Right. You know, we had more episodes or more, more, more suspects in this season. Yes. So that all have their own, fun. their own individual problems. Yeah. Um, just a little side note. You might hear the uh, little chimes of Lisa. She's here with us for this episode. And I yes. just wanted to throw that out there. So people. Hello, everyone. Hi, who, Lisa. You know, who was, you know, as some of our other, some of our listeners have pointed out, usually she has me being smited with by angels and things like that during well, serves you right. the episodes when she's here. So it serves you right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we didn't mention this last time, but we're recording out of our, our favorite place, the Best Western Premier yes, Hotel. Our in, home away from home. In Alton, yeah. Or the uh, and home of the Haunted America Conference. Yes. Which we just, <laughs> which we just recently released the lineup for. Um, so if you are... Uh, in any way interested in the conference, go to um, ghostconference.net and you'll find out about next year's event, which is July or I'm sorry, June 26th and 27th of 2020. And uh, we are we're really we got a good lineup again. Uh, we've got Sherry Breakback. We've got um, some new people, some some of our old favorites. Uh, Jennifer Jones is back from the Dead History is back for next year. Sarah Soderland is back, which a lot of people have been asking us about having Sarah back. But um, it wasn't because we don't love Sarah. It was because Sarah was like moving and all these things. So Sarah is back. Um, Seth Breedlove, uh, my friend who does uh, the Small Town Monsters okay. films is back. I did that um, Terror in the Sky uh, show with him and I'm, I'm doing, I'm going to be doing another one with him. Another, another All right. film. I, I, Seth does some of the coolest things. So he's going to be coming back. Um, and as I think we've probably mentioned already that we're going to be doing a tribute to Rosemary Ellen Guiley at the conference. Um, we're going to, you know, for years we've done our strange stuff thing and we've, um, dedicated that to my friend, John Brill, who passed away years mm -hmm. ago, but came up with the idea. I think we're going to, um, kind of, um, do our speaker panel and to, to Rosemary, but we're going to talk about Rosemary. Um, those of you who listen to the podcast, you heard some of our Rosemary tributes. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, and I think some of our regular listeners too heard some of our tributes to Rosemary who passed away from cancer, uh, and didn't make it to the uh, 2019 conference as she had planned to do. Um, so we've got a lot of things cooking for uh, 2020. So check out the website. You'll find out everything we've got coming up. Uh, the tickets go on sale January 6th. We'll talk about that more, I'm sure, later as things go on. Um, we also posted up our Dead of Winter event. Um, as a lot of you know who attend that, Cody and I do a uh, live episode from the Dead of Winter event for yeah. the last several years. And so we'll be doing that again. Uh, but we've got some um, some new people coming up for that. Um, Allison Jornlin is coming down from Wisconsin to do that. Our friend Renee Cruz uh, oh, yeah. is coming for Dead of Winter. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, everybody, a lot of our listeners um, who are attend the conference and things have known Renee. She's been a, an integral part of our company for the last 
25 years or so. Renee's probably going to hear this driving around. She will. Sporty new Outback. Yes, she will. she's going to hear her voice and, and swerve off the road. <laughs> and she's going to lose She will her hear mind. it. Is, so. it. is it rude to say I wish Renee was my mother? No, Renee because we wish we 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 call Renee our uh, our what do we usually call her our I call her Renee. our surrogate mother okay uh, because right. she always you know fixes everything yeah. so yeah, yeah we love Renee and, and she is God bless her for it I know so I was just it. out there in uh, at the end of August to visit and we brought Cody. This is a long story. I won't tell the whole story, but I can give a little bit of the story. But we brought Cody back a T-shirt Renee sent for him that was uh, it's a T-shirt of all of the bridges of Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh has several different rivers that come through it. So there's a lot of bridges that get from other parts of Pennsylvania into Pittsburgh because of all the rivers. And um, at the conference last year, the 2019 conference in this room that we're recording in right now, um, I'm going to say you were slightly inebriated. Um, well, it was one thirty a.m. and I don't know what you're it was. About. Very early in the morning, and Renee was talking about bridges, as Renee does, because I should mention that she is a professor of engineering, an intellectual, um, and you is will. you know knows more than the rest of us will ever know, and yes. uh, was explaining to Cody about all of the different types of bridges. I, I asked her. Who, like, you were interested oh, in it. I, and she I thought her. that she has still thinks that you were playing along. And I assured her, I said, no, listen, not. Cody gets these things where he gets interested in something and he wants to hear all about it. He really does. So For I a, think at least I a week. finally, I think I finally convinced her that you were really interested in hearing about the bridges because yep. while we were there, she did buy you a t-shirt with the bridges, which I brought to you and today. And I love so, it so And he much. does love it. So it will be a, it will go into his regular rotation with his pizza t-shirts and everything. And my, so, uh, let's, oh, summon let's summon demons, demons t-shirts yes. and things. I, so. I will, I will say though, there are other friends that I have that can vouch where I have said on multiple occasions, if you put a gun to my head and said, build a bridge or build a skyscraper, I'd be like, no idea. You might as well pull a trigger because <laughs> they've always fascinated me because I don't know how they, how do they do it? I know. And I know. she mentioned something about it and you know, the engineering background. And I was like, will you tell me how they work? And yeah. she got so excited. And yeah. it's something that I bring up is about a good educator. She loves bridges. They, a good educator can get you excited about shit you don't care about at right. all. If Absolutely. they are passionate about it. And, Absolutely. And I loved it so much. And I had so much fun. And there were so many drawings. And yeah. thank you for the shirt. And yep. she also bought me an oil lamp yep. like they had back in from, the Bliska days. Yeah, from our Murder in the Bed series. She wanted Cody to see what an oil lamp with the chimney removed looked like. So she bought him one and I love over it. the summer. So and we lit it up the other day. It's so much anyway, fun. Renee will be here for Dead of Winter this year, which she doesn't usually get to do. She always comes to the conference. She doesn't usually get to come to Dead of Winter, so she'll be there. Um, I should also mention um, Tobias and Emily Whalen from the Singular 40 and Society. I We mentioned them in our, our thank yous last episode when we were talking about shout outs to Patriot people, Patreon people. Yep. And... Um, I should have mentioned more about them last episode, yeah, tell me but what's they, going on. Um, well, they do. Um, the Singular Fortean Society is a investigative society of a lot of different people. They've got a really cool Facebook page. They have a Patreon page. Lisa and I belong to, and then Tobias and Emily belong to ours. We kind of, you know, interchange on yeah. that. And um, they put they put together. I don't remember last year at the conference. They were back in the corner, and they had this repository of unusual stories where people could tell their stories on video. And okay, so, yeah. yeah, Tobias and Emily have been kind of releasing those on Facebook 
and for Patreon members so people can see different people's stories. But they're going to bring that to Dead of Winter and the conference. And Tobias is going to speak at the conference as well. Uh, but they're going to bring that to both events. And if you're wondering about Dead of Winter, if you're a new listener uh, and you're from anywhere in the Illinois, Missouri, St. Louis area, um, that's a free event that we do every February. And um, we 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 do that as as sort of a charity event because a lot of the food banks in various areas, uh, people are really keen to donate at Christmas time because that seems to be the time to do it, to right. be charitable, the Ebenezer Scrooge whole thing, you know, and people are, are charitable at Christmas, but then by the end of February or so, they're starting to run out of food. Yeah. So we do this event to benefit local food charities. So we do it as a free event, as long as you bring a canned good or non-perishable item. And we'll talk more about that as it gets closer. Um, we've been doing it for, gosh, this is our 21st year, I believe, Crazy. this coming year. Um, for the Dead of Winter event. I believe it's 21 or 22. Longer than I've been I alive. it was just like five. No, no, no. No, we've been doing this for a long time. Okay, and well, the best ones have been in the five. <laughs> yeah, have been, have been <laughs> since you've been in charge. Yeah, they have. Oh, well, thank um, you for mentioning Yeah, that. they have been. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be uh, doing that again in February at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton. And uh, if you're listening to this now, speaking of Alton, um, it's not too late to get tickets for some of the events. Um, not our evening of, with events. They're sold out and the river road tours are sold out. But we have all of our award winning walking tours and bus tours and stuff still going on. So I know it's getting late. It's getting close to October now, but it's not too late uh, to still get involved in that. And that in some of our other cities like Springfield, uh, Decatur, not so much at this point, but Chicago, Carlinville, uh, we still have a lot going on. Cool. So, and I'll be at some of those random, fall. random fall yeah, events. Yeah, Cody will too. be at some of the events in Alton that are coming up. Um, we've we got a ghost hunt on October 4th, which is sold out. But we do have another one uh, at the Mineral Springs uh, for December the 6th, I believe. It's December 6th. Yeah, December 6th. Mm -hmm. We have another ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs. It does still have availability. That's our kind of Spirits of Christmas thing. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, we did that last year, remember? No, but well, I'm sure we anyway, did. Anyway, you were there, but they we'll all do blend it again. together so after a I while. Know, I know, but Especially Mineral join Springs. us if you can. Yeah. We'll be around. Awesome. So. Uh, well, we have a couple listener reviews. Oh, great. This one. Um, that I'm going to start out with is a little bit longer. When you say, uh, that makes me think they're bad. Well, so I've been listening to a lot of audio of myself for various reasons, and I <laughs> wanted to put a, a post-it on my computer that says, just be silent instead of saying, uh, because I do it so much. I do too. I, and I hear myself doing it too. It annoys me. At least, yeah, but I get to cut yours out of monologues and stuff. Mine just sit here, and I just, <laughs> I'm just going down in history sounded stupid. Um, but anyway, this is a longer review, but I think that it's, uh, it's worth it. Okay. Sorry, I said it again. So this one says, stick with it, and it's from Santana on Fire. It says, I'm new to podcasts in general, Seems and after my Carlos. fiance got me hooked on Crime Junkie, I got curious about any paranormal ghost podcasts, and I Googled it. American Hauntings podcast came up on a list of top 10. I read the descriptions of all of them and wow. started with really? this one. No and shit. I've seen them on a couple lists, but oh, yeah, cool. I'm not sure. Uh, the historical aspect and rational slash skeptical approach of it attracted me more than the others, and it just seemed to be perpetuating, uh, the others that just seemed to be perpetuating lore or listening to people tell their personal stories. Also interesting, but not investigative. Coming from the format of Crime Junkie took me a little adjusting to American Hauntings, but I have been uh, binging this and fin just finished season two. I love that season one is about Alton, Illinois, as an Illinoisan. Is that how you say that word? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and with the last name Alton, 
I'm familiar with <laughs> I'm familiar with the town, but uh, is it Alton Brown? I, no, wait, that's the wrong one. But didn't know if it, uh, it was so rife with hauntings. As the show warms up, Troy and Cody find their stride, and I love their rapport. I don't, but I really appreciate that mm-hmm. you do. Um, at first, the little outtakes and banter before the second half of the episode started to annoy me a little, but I've come to love it, and they make me laugh. I plan to take my currently eight-year-old daughter, who shares my love of the spooky, on one of their ghost tours as a daddy-daughter trip thing. Uh, goal is within the next year or so, so keep up the great work, guys. I've shared a link to the podcast with a few friends already. Um, and you also nice. been messaging me on uh, or commenting on Instagram and stuff. Um, and I just wanted to bring up, like, I, I appreciate when people say, like, hey, I didn't like this at first, but it kind of got better and it, it grew on me. And that stuff makes me happy. And with the little uh, outtakes or little banter stuff I do in the beginning, that was always just kind of testing out. Like, that hey, was I, always thought, just fun. I thought this was yeah. funny when I was editing, yeah. so I put it in the beginning. Um, so I'm glad that that grew on you. I'm not familiar with Crime Junkie, so I'm not no, sure I'm not of that yeah, podcast. The differences, but, yeah. yeah, but thanks for searching and for finding us cool. and, for, yeah. and for reaching out. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. This last review is from Ariana Moonslave73. <laughs> just titled, I love it. Uh, I just started listening to podcasts and my son told me about this one because I've read many of Troy's books. I'm totally hooked. I love the storytelling and the facts that go with it. His storytelling skills are outstanding. Keep them coming. They are wonderful. So thank you very much for that review. Again, these reviews just help people. It just tells iTunes like, hey, this is something you should show Someone's people. actually listening to it. So exactly. yeah, other people might like it too. Right. Yeah. So we really appreciate it. Cool. Um, even the negative ones are sometimes fun. They are fun. But uh, five stars, preferably. Hey, everyone. We have to take a quick break to listen to a word from our sponsors. So people are always coming up to me and saying, Cody, how do I listen to your podcast? I got this phone just to take pictures of ghosts and I don't I don't know what else to do with it. So I tell them you can check us out on Stitcher Premium. And right now you can get a free month trial by going to stitcherpremium.com and using the promo code hauntings. And if you're looking for some new true crime, and you can check out the True Crime Garage off the record, the latest project from True Crime Garage host Nick and the Captain. You join them each week as they revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date. This is a compilation of hidden treasures, a chance to dive deeper, discuss new theories and get updates on on your favorite episodes of True Crime Garage. Or if you're looking for something a little different, comedian Chris Gethard's Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People opens the phone line to one anonymous caller, and Chris can't hang up first no matter what. From shocking confessions and family secrets to philosophical discussions and shameless self-promotion, anything can and will happen. Stitcher Premium also has new ad-free episodes of cult favorite My Favorite Murder and hit shows from the podcast network like Cults and Conspiracy Theories and my personal favorite podcast, How Did This Get Made? Plus thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need a laugh. And of course, like I said, our show is also available every week with Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code HAUNTINGS. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code HAUNTINGS. Cool. Um, okay, are you ready? Are you ready to dive in? Sure, we're getting yeah. near the end, man. Yeah, we are one episode away from the end. We so. are, and that episode, we're going to talk about it later. Yeah, it's going to be different. It's going to be back to the roots, and yeah. I'm excited about yeah. that. But right now, this I just labeled the the aftermath. Um, yeah, it pretty much is. This is kind of boiling down the suspects and the murders and what happened. Yes, you know. And I mentioned kind of at the end of last episode, and I don't think I'm phrasing this right, but. I said it's a tough pill to swallow, but Velisco wasn't exactly special and, thing, and things were not simple. What happened no. there later was very different, but 
he could have got off in any town right and gone exactly. to any house exactly and and but people always seem to want a simple explanation and they didn't you mentioned they didn't want to consider something even more horrific and sinister had taken place that the murders were the work of a random stranger with a motive right. that none of them could understand and i think that's something that i kind of lose sight of a lot um is that I always ask you these questions about um, why he did this, why he did that or anything. And I'm always coming from the angle and assumption that this person's thinking rationally and right, is sane and right. he's not. It's not, uh, you know, um, but that's and that's kind of what I talked about in this this episode was that, you know, there were lots of people that might be possible suspects here, but every one of them was like a drooling maniac. Disorganized. This guy, right. This guy was, while insane, obviously, you have to be insane to commit these kinds of murders, obviously. But you got to be calculated and not get but caught. But you have to be organized that you're not getting caught. You, this is this guy is the BTK killer mm-hmm. of the, you know, early 1900s. Right. You know, this is someone who was organized. He wasn't crazy in that he was crazy. Technically, um, you would say he was insane, but, but there's he a wasn't, logic to what he does. Right. He wasn't flawed, a maniac who was just out like, you know, obviously to anyone who met them on, on, on the street, this guy needed to be put in a straight jacket and locked away mm-hmm. somewhere. That's not what we had in this situation. Right. This was a guy who was able to blend into society. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it was a society of, you know, railroad detectives and hobos riding the rails, nobody looked at this guy and said, Oh my God, he's this drooling maniac. Right. We should call the police. Right. He was able to blend in mm-hmm. and uh, he blended into the towns that he got off the train. And there were lots of stories about people claiming they saw someone walking down the street in Villisca or sure. I saw someone go into a house and, Oh, I think it was Albert Jones. No, you didn't. Right. You didn't. It wasn't Albert. He wasn't even in town, but you saw this man walk into this house, but it didn't strike you that he was, you know, crazily waving an ax around and foaming at the mouth, you know? So you saw this guy, but you didn't think anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how he got away with this for as long as he did. Right. You know, right. And the mental state, I mean, we don't obviously know too much about him, but it it reminds me, or I'm thinking about, uh, Timothy McVeigh or uh, Carl Panzer and these people who were not crazy. They did terrible, horrible things. Oh, yeah, but horrible they things. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were yeah. very calculated. I mean, they were completely in- insane. Right. John Wayne Gacy. Right. But look how long Gacy went. And, but, yeah, but you not... Well, I know, dressing up as a clown. But still, but he, I mean, he was able to put up a front mm-hmm. to be able to murder 33 plus right and he's young not, he's men not and boys. dancing naked in the street and exactly red people flags. are not i mean he's fitting into society people think he's a great guy he's this contractor he runs his own business he's the democratic chairman of this area where he lives he you know um you know meets with president carter and and his rosalind carter and nobody thinks twice about this guy he's a member of the jc's and he's Mm -hmm. this great guy and so he lives in the suburbs and he lives in this ordinary house Mm -hmm. and you know it wasn't people didn't even even when they started to smell something coming from under the crawl space um they they thought oh it's too bad you know john's got a problem with you know mice or rats that have died underneath his house. Nobody right. thought he's killing people and burying them in his mm-hmm. crawl space. And so when it all comes out, 
they're shocked. Right. This, this is that guy. Yep. He just travels and he lives a completely different lifestyle. He doesn't blend into society. He doesn't live in one town where he murders all these people. He travels by railroad from town to town to town, but no one thinks twice. Mm-hmm. They don't look at him and think this guy's a maniac. Right. They look at him and think, oh, you know, it's just another, he's, just another traveler. Right. It's another he's, guy on the road. He's like dismissed very quickly, but not memorable. And right. just kind of goes, right. he's, he's like the men in black. Except those really, really <laughs> terrible things. Right. Um, and th- you actually brought something up that I want to tell you. Uh, I started watching Mindhunter again. Yes. It's amazing. Season two is fantastic. It's amazing. The f- I, I had to get through the, the first, first weekend. episode. Yeah, I, I killed I did, the whole thing. I don't oh, like the you dialogue. Didn't want the, first w- the first season trying to get it started yes. is a little rough getting started. The first episode, I hated rolls. the dialogue, but I, I yeah. give everything now three episodes, and I love the yeah, show now. It's a great and show. I'm, uh, I recommend it so much. And I a lot too. of the things we're talking about now. Where they coined things like yes. organized serial killer things and, like that. Right. 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 So if you if you like the stuff we're talking about, that's weird, but you're not alone. Go watch Mindhunter. Yeah, it's I like great. it a lot. It's great. Let's talk about some of the other suspects though, in uh, especially in the days following the murders. A lot of them were quickly dismissed, but yeah. uh, I, you brought some of them up and I want to dive in a little bit. A lot of them were quickly dismissed, but then there's a few. So there's Charles uh, B. Soured. Soured. All yeah. right, which just sounds bad. Yeah. Um we so he he drew a lot of attention to himself. He was he was nutty. It was just some kind of mentally ill guy yeah. who lived in this town and drew a lot of attention to himself by, you know, waving around an axe. And then when they finally arrested him, he, you know, start make it, started making all these crazy claims about how he was the head chief of the U.S. Indian police and all this stuff. I mean, you know, none of these things existed. And right. he was just this, he was the town eccentric. He was mm-hmm. this guy who had a lot of mental issues at a time when, well, I mean, I should say, you know, I, I was going to say in a town when people didn't know how to deal with this stuff, but do we really now? I mean, I think that even now we I have mean, a lot of failings sure. with this kind of thing. You, no they're one knows in, what to do. No one knows how to handle it. To a right. Anymore, right. But so it's different than it used to be, but, but it's you know, we look yet. at the, we look at the, the shootings and things that take place now, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, sort of modern day equivalent to a lot of the stuff we've talked about. Um, I'd rather be shot than have my face bashed in but, with an axe. But you Sorry. see my point. Yes. Yes. People don't see the warning signs. Right. And nobody saw the warning signs of this guy. Either. Right. I mean, his, his well, cousin was like the, one of the main doctors in Clarence which is about 20 miles from Velisca. And it was more of an embarrassment than anything else. Yeah, than anything else. But something I even learned from the Mindhunter show, and I know that it's, it's kind of fictionalized, but uh, for parts of it, but something I learned is that no one wanted to talk about even getting in the head of somebody like no. this. It was just, they're a psychopath, that's all right. there is to it. Right. And you never dug deeper. Yeah. It's, um, and this was, that was recent. Yes. Honestly, 40 yeah, years that ago. Was, yeah, in the 70s. And we were just starting to kind of understand more of these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, it was at that point where they were finally taking things like, you know, homosexuality out of the DSM. Right. It was no longer seen as a mental illness. Right. I mean, this is stuff that no one understood. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people who were, you know, pioneers and this kind of stuff, even back in the fifties who were trying to get things to change, but nobody took them seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, masters and Johnson in the fifties were trying to get things like homosexuality taken out of a mental illness and Mm -hmm. moved over into something else, but no one understood how that worked. And they were seen. Now we see them as pioneers, but at the time they were, you know, really 
really out there. Right. It's like, and we have real mental illnesses to deal with. Right. And so, but even now we don't, we still don't understand all these things. We're still learning. Sure. Um, It's better now than it was say in the seventies or definitely better than it was in the teens and twenties is what we're talking about in our story. Right. So, because this guy, I obviously there was something going on, but it seemed like a lot of, yeah, he just like fucking with people and just yeah, like just, it was good you know, sport. He, he was, he made, you know, he made things up and he lived in this grandiose kind of imaginary world, you know, where he had 50,000 people working for him as the head of the U S Indian police. Right, I mean, that's, right. these things didn't exist, but in his world they did. Yeah. And you, you listed but out everybody, anybody that was out of the ordinary at the time these Spare murders game. took place became a suspect. Sure. And you, you, we're only going to talk about three of them here, but we want to oh, say there were, there were many so more. many There's leads. lots of other people. And that's a lot of usually what happens to you when you open up information to the public or, or solicit, right. you know, right. information from other people. Uh, the next one I want to talk about, Andy Sawyer. So he's good with an ax. Uh, said he'd been in Villisca that night. Uh, and he actually wondered if he was a suspect. Yeah. And the guy that turned him in said that Sawyer was the fastest man with an ax he'd ever seen. Spent a lot of time sharpening it and even took it to bed with him at yeah, night. Yeah, a little weird. Is he I, like I'm sure there up? Is he there the may be more. For all we know, there may be more to that story. For all we know, this was one that, an axe that he actually owned and right. didn't want anybody to steal. I it. mean, yeah, that's I fair. mean, but all of it looks bad. Sure, in the wake of eight murders, right? By axe and the guy who turned him in eventually, uh, Dwyer, and he approaches him from behind, and all he doing it mean to, he startled him, and Sawyer leapt to his feet and shouted, "I'll cut your goddamn heads off!" Began wildly swinging the, his axe. I mean, that's kind of, but we're getting a, a weird skewed viewpoint sure, of this. Sure. So. Um, I'm not going to say it didn't happen though, but no, anyways. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying that when you look at it, um, these things that are happening and then you apply them to eight murders just took place by oh, acts, right, right, right. things look a lot worse. Than they were because Sheriff Jackson, who was no great shakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he ended up being one of Wilkerson's buddies. And, right. You know, but he didn't think there was anything to this. Sure, sure, yeah. So he's and a, neither did any of the detectives. And he's eventually ruled out. Right. And, you know, on that note, I just kind of rearranged some stuff in my apartment the other day, and now there is a little hatchet that n- next to my computer desk just leaning there. And it's just like, does that <laughs> right. need to be there? And I was like, right. well, it just kind of ended up there, and yeah. sort of. Yeah. So I might have been a suspect. Cause but, right, it's anybody right who had just something hanging around. You know? I mean, Thomas O'Leary is the one who tracked him down and found out where he was. And O'Leary was, as I mentioned in the story, one of the only detectives who actually ever did anything. Right. You know, other than just try to collect on a reward. And he was good about ruling people out. Well, now that you mentioned it, though, too, now that I'm thinking more about it, so they have all these different leads or whatever, you know, tips they have to check out and stuff. But nowadays, I can get on the internet and get somebody to call. These guys, like, are taking trains, traveling. It's days and days, and it's got to be exhausting to go through absolutely everything yeah. so like no wonder shit kind of ended up how it did right because um, I mean how many times can you take a train out for this one weird yeah and when guy? you've got so many you know you've got all these different you've got sheriffs and constables and police officers and you've got all these different towns mm-hmm. and there's no you you could say you know um, just to kind of put it in perspective we recently uh, commemorated the 20 or the 50th anniversary of the Manson Tate murders. I mean, the, oh, share, yeah. the Tate LaBianca murders sure. in Manson in Hollywood. And when you think about how long this stuff drug on, because the, these two different, you know, police departments, the sheriff's department didn't cooperate with each other. Imagine how that was in 1912. Right. You know, you've got all of these different little departments in all these different places. None of them 
not only it's not that they didn't want to cooperate, there was just no way to do it back right, then. Right. So that's how people became suspects. Mm-hmm. You know, you could and and like I said, we left as Cody mentioned, we only talked about a you know, a few people. I mean, there were lots of other people that had done things that made friends or relatives or ex-girlfriends or whatever suspect them that they would turn them over to the police and say, oh, I think they did it. Right. You know, but then you it's tough, too, because you can't ignore all of them because look at uh, Ted Kaczynski, right? Turned in by his brother, his brother, you know, and so like you can't rule all this. No, you can't. That's why they have to follow every lead. That's why, you know, I mentioned all the things that that O'Leary was doing. I mean, this guy was was getting hundreds of letters and Mm -hmm. he's setting them aside with, you know, which ones are drooling maniacs and which ones are something that are worth looking into. Right. You know, and that's that's. What makes a good detective, I guess, is knowing the difference. Well, let's talk about some letters then. So <laughs> John Bolin, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, yeah so so he, I, I tried to summarize this. Basically claimed his former employee had tried to hypnotize him. And yeah, that guy was nuts. Yeah, I and mean, he, he, sent, nuts. he sent a 40-page letter followed by another. It, it's got a bunch of like bizarre biblical references yeah. from what I understand. Yeah, the Garden of Paradise and all that stuff. But, right, right. I mean, this guy was, this guy was a nut. I yeah. mean, he was crazy. So... Yeah. yeah, and so that that was just kind of the last one that you mentioned. But like I said, there's tons of other leads and tips to go through, and I could talk about the John well, the Bolin letter that the day. the sheriff in Ellsworth, Kansas, got too that he sent on to, and it was a bunch of biblical stuff too that he sent on to Velisca because it was talking to different things about axemen. It was just and the all whirlwinds of, of Ezekiel. Yeah, no, thing. that was later. This was the the ones about the uh, you know Bible verses and and axemen and four years and oh, all right, that stuff. Right. Was going to use fire to destroy human life. Yes. Sign the letter Masir Shalal Ross Bass and yeah. all this stuff, which just made no sense. Right. And you think, wow, things weren't that much different then she as still, they are yeah, now. Still That's all the kind time. of stuff that she comes had to up. Write it instead of now, the it. whirlwinds of Ezekiel stuff, that was stuff that O'Leary had to dig into. Yeah. And that was some crazy stuff too. But um, that had always been from the very beginning one of those things that. Um, some of the, the law enforcement people and detectives involved thought that it might be some kind of religious, crazy group. Yes, and, I love you know, this. And I think that got spawned by the Holy Rollers who were in town at the mm-hmm. time. And there were some people who blamed them for the murders. Um, we didn't, we, we mentioned that, we didn't dig into it too deep. Um, there were also some other murders that were going on in Texas and Louisiana at the time. Uh, that were said to be part of the Church of the Sacrifice murders. And I've written an article about that. Mm-hmm. I didn't introduce it into this because it doesn't really directly connect to what we're talking about. But these were also axe murders mm. uh, that were taking place in that area at the time. And they got blamed on this alleged church. Uh, really, it turned out to be more of a blame it on uh, the black people kind of thing. It was a very racist thing that was going on. It had more to do with it. This was some kind of church that practiced like a type of voodoo and stuff. And satanic. I've got an article, read the article. It's, it's on my Facebook page. I've got it on there and I'm happy to share it with you. If you want to link in there. Yeah. If you want to find it, um, I've got the link to it. I can send it to you. So just get in touch with us. But um, it had nothing to do with Velisca, but it did happen around the same time. So Mm -hmm. that became kind of a popular theory. So when O'Leary got this really crazy stuff about, um, you know, 
the, this 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 whirlwinds of Ezekiel right. and all that kind of More stuff, and there were some things. codes in it that seemed to have something to do with you know it might have something to do with the Moors, it might have something to do with uh, Ellsworth, Kansas, because it used showman in it yep. and that kind of thing. And you know he was one of the people who was one of the proponents of the idea that this was not a isolated incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, O'Leary always believed that there were other murders connected yeah. to this one, um, which was. Semi-popular with a few people, that but then faded out because, well, as we talked about in the in the um, the monologue, people wanted it to believe that it was something homegrown. Well, it's simple. Yeah, yeah, it's simple, and this was too crazy and too weird and just too outside of their experience. I could see even myself if I if I thought these things were connected, I would start. I would I would be obsessed over that, and it's kind of like uh, the number twenty three sort of thing. I would be sure. looking at these letters and start yeah. to see all these connections, whether yeah, they're there or not. There's, and there's those conspiracy theories are out there everywhere, and numbers seem to be a big thing with people. Um, and you know, you can find you can find any kind of conspiracy theory you want, mm-hmm. some of which makes sense, and and most who don't. Um, why, why do they all eventually get anti-Semitic at some point? <laughs> uh, yeah, they do. They either, either, yeah, they always become either anti-Semitic or so, in, in some racial kind of thing. Right, right. Or involve some polit- political figures or sure. families or whatever. Uh, there's so many of them out there. And this is, this is one of those conspiracy theories, you know, with all of these different murders and it being tracked down to the same guy mm-hmm. um, that... I think is a worthwhile conspiracy theory because these murders do match, but you can get carried away with it. Um, totally. And we've talked about that book. We've talked about it a couple of times. There is a book that came out that links like a hundred different murders, which don't match at all. Um, you know, when, when you've got a series of things, as we talked about, you know, with the, you know, the way that the bodies were covered, the way the, the, the lamp was, the, the certain things, mm-hmm. When you have a handful or, you know, enough, it's still a lot of murders that took place. Those were all connected. You can't link a hundred different murders to one person all over the country. No no one has that kind of time. Right. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't make sense when you've got murder scenes that don't match. You can't link them. Just right. because someone was murdered with an axe doesn't make it linked to Velisca. Sure. Um, because it means you should check it out. Right. As I've mean? talked about already, when I started working on this story in the first place, years ago, like 15 years ago, I found lots and lots of axe murders, but there's only, you know, a few. I mean, a, a relative few that are linked by everything that fits, you know, all of the different criteria that fits. Um, if you want to take them all, I mean... Axes were found in everybody's house. Everybody had one. You had to split firewood if you wanted to eat or keep your house warm. So there are lots of axes out there. Everyone had them on their farm. You can't go by every single axe murder. You just can't. Right. You know, but we managed to narrow this down to a handful and then added in San Antonio, Mm -hmm. which I had never done before until we started doing the podcast. And I started doing some more research and found another case that fit. You know, we just had we had Texas. And then before that, we had Colorado. We had Kansas. We had Illinois. We had Iowa. Mm -hmm. And that was a handful of murders. But they fit. Yeah. And they got attention and they got newspaper coverage for a while. Until people started thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, that's an outlandish conspiracy theory that can't be real. Right. And so it kind of got dropped, but it was real. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's one that actually 
is real. It's not, you know, they shot the moon landing in a soundstage. It's, it's not like that. It's, you know, 900 different conspiracies about, you know, the Kennedy assassination. This isn't that. This is, there's hard evidence here. Mm-hmm. You know, no, we don't know who the killer was, as we've already discussed in this episode. I ended it by saying, we don't know who he was. We're never going to know who he was. But I believe these murders were connected. Sure. And it was the same guy. Velisca was just different. Right. It was and, just different. And I think a lot of uh, the suspects that we do end up having, the issue from right from the, the jump is that they are suspects because they somehow made themselves known, which that in and of itself is like, that's not our that's, guy. No, that's not our guy. So, if you did something, if you confess to it, if you did something that made you, that put you on the target list of the police. That's out of character. That's not you because yeah. you haven't been doing that now for two and a half years. Right. You know, um, you know, I. What happened to him after Blue Island? We don't know. Yeah, and yeah, but he certainly never drew attention to himself before. Exactly, and yeah, that's just not how it, how it works. So you kind of summed it up saying basically this harbinger of death, which I love that term, uh, <laughs> begins in San Antonio, March twenty first, nineteen eleven. Probably before that, but that's at least the biggest. That's what we know. That's, that's the biggest the, the one. one that we can find. And you said, like a plague, the tr- the killer traveled the Midwest, likely by rail, seeking victims in Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa. He continued to kill until 1914, when he apparently vanished without a trace. But you don't believe that he stopped of his own volition, and I don't, no, I don't. either. There are a few people that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, one of them is Chicago, 1912. Uh, Galasco and Chevy. And Chevy, yeah. He's the first Axeman identified after he killed a former school teacher, beheading her, eventually escaped from an insane asylum. Uh, like we talked about, he's too insane and disorganized to yeah, be the guy. Th- yeah, too too much. And and I think that, you know, um, Captain Schutler, who was who I've written about in several of my books, mm-hmm. um, he plays into several prominent crimes. I think this guy really had his act together. but And I think he had a good idea that this was somebody. Sure. I mean, that was committing these murders, but this was somebody who he had dealt with firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so he knew of him. He knew what he'd done and it was easy to name him as a suspect. So sure. I think he had the right idea. I just don't think he had the right guy right. just because he was just too disorganized. But how would police have known about this in 1914? They didn't. If you're psycho, you know, you're there psycho. Was, there was no breakdown of different types of murders. It's mm-hmm. easy for us to look back in hindsight and say, oh, yeah, that guy, it couldn't have been him. He was disorganized. But at the time, I'm sure he looked like a great suspect. Oh, I would have followed the lead. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so we move on. We have Henry Lee Moore. Yeah, uh, another Moore. Mentioned him before, and we made jokes <laughs> yeah. about his name. And we've talked about him. But, you know, that was, and again, it's kind of the same thing with Captain Schutler is that, you know, Schutler was looking for someone who had maybe committed a string of murders. And here was a suspect he had in hand that he was familiar with. So that became the killer. It's the same way with McLowry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was somebody that right. his dad had locked up at Leavenworth. So he was familiar with him. Yep. So he could, you know, and say, well, you know, here's a guy who who committed these murders with an ax. Um, I believe that there were a lot of murders in other towns. So why not this guy? I mean, it's he didn't have any actual evidence. He didn't have any hard evidence, no fingerprints. And this was a guy who knew fingerprints. And we talked about him. He was the he guy. He was an expert. He was an expert. He's the one who showed up drunk and fell off the train, you know, when he I got to Villisca. Uh, but he, um, you know, was an expert in fingerprints. He didn't find any fingerprints that he could use inside the house. And he decided that it must be Henry Moore mm-hmm. because 
it was a suspect he was familiar with. Yeah, yep. So that's that's how he became the guy. Everybody gets and stuck on somebody. Yeah, and it, it's the same way with Blue Island. You know, you had that uh, Erzuski yes. guy yes. who was just as nutty. Well, he as, confessed, yeah. Yeah, as Sinchevi, er, he was just as crazy as that guy was. But this was a guy they were familiar with mm-hmm. because he confessed. So they were, they had the right idea. The theory was right. It's just they were picking people because it was easier. Same sure. way that the people from Villisca chose Reverend Kelly or Frank Jones. That was someone they were familiar with. So it made it all. It was no longer the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Now it was someone they knew. Yeah. So these guys did the exact same thing, but in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I would love to think that I would be able to take a step back, but I don't know if I would. No, I, 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 I know. I think I would follow one I, thing. It totally makes sense yeah. why they did it. And again, it's easy in hindsight for us to look at that and go, oh, well, you know, that guy was disorganized. Well, there's no way they knew that. Then. Right. You know, so it's it crazy. makes it's crazy. complete sense. All right. So you have a theory about this. Um, I've seen it on 4chan and Reddit and other places. That, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but you have a theory about kind of what happened. And I mean, anyone who's listened to most of these episodes should be able to kind of piece it together. But I'm just going to spell it out yeah. quickly. Um, you've been, and you, you told me in this, you've been to the Moore house over a dozen times. Yeah. At least I lost count. Right. And yeah. you do have some ghost stories and maybe even some footage that we might talk about next yep. episode. Yep. Which I'm excited about, but you, you've researched the shit out of this and you have, you have done, you've done your homework. So what happened on June 9th? Well, you say you don't know why he chose the Moors, but it's likely that Billy had reasons all Well, I'm sure he had some kind of reason. Right. right. Reasons uh, that would perhaps make no sense to the ordinary person. And that's when yeah. I started to think. We're trying to look at this through a logical right. lens that doesn't right. exist. Right. So Billy grabs an axe from the backyard, probably gets off the train, grabs an axe from the backyard of a nearby house, enters it through the back door, picks up an oil lamp from the table. Um, I was going to say, I have one of these oil lamps now. Thank you again, Renee. Um, <laughs> he walks up the stairs, kills JB first, the only victim struck by the sharp edge of right. the axe. Right. Isn't, we've talked about this before, but I'm just kind of bringing it back. Like you mentioned, it might get stuck if you're going for the one person that is a threat. Why would he not well, use the blunt part? Less, um, probably less hits. It mm. needs to be lethal as quickly as possible. Okay. Because the, you know, the man of the house is going to be the one who fights sure. back. Sure. So. Okay. Um, it's upsetting, but probably right. So, uh, Sarah probably wakes up, but she's taken out quickly. He kills all the kids, kills all the kids, pulls sheets up over their faces and bodies, goes back to the parents' room, covers them up, leaves the oil lamp. So are we thinking that he didn't cover them up initially because of that oil lamp found in there that he had to probably go back? Probably. That's my guess. I mean, I, I'm trying to piece this by the, put it together by the way things were found. Sure. Yep. Um, and I, I've always thought that because he didn't finish any of the food that he got out in mm-hmm. the kitchen, that he didn't know there was another bedroom. That's right. why I put that together. Right. Plus, it also makes sense that Reverend Kelly saw what happened, mm-hmm. you know, because um, Peeping Tom, right. you know, and that's the only ones he could have witnessed mm-hmm. because it's the only one that was downstairs. Right. And then he, you know, he got food out but didn't finish it. And, and that was unusual. Right. Yeah. And, and lit a second lamp. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was unusual. That's not normal. You know, the, the one lamp was normal. Um, eating the food was normal. This mm-hmm. was not normal. He didn't eat the food. So right. my thought is that he got the stuff out, but then didn't finish it because he realized there was someone else there. Do you know what the food was? Uh, I don't. I, I know don't it was the know. bacon, but I didn't know. Yeah, well, the bacon was, but the bacon Kelly. you couldn't eat without 
cooking it. Right. Um, the other stuff thing. was stuff that you could eat then. Mm. Well, yeah. I wonder, was the bacon Kelly or was the bacon? He was planning on being there for a while. He's well, like, and that could be too. And that's possible too. So I just, that I that was kind of thrown in as a maybe. Sure. Kind of thing. I wonder though too, so he comes downstairs, starts washing up and making food. Um, I wonder how loud he was thinking no one's in the house or is he probably didn't worry about it right because there was nobody that was going to hear it and much more yeah probably much more relaxed um, so you think he probably hears something a noise out in the front of the house um, whether it's kid or Kelly or something but something gets him to notice hey there's another room over here mm-hmm. light up second lamp kills those kids um, and I like you you really went into detail with this, but basically he feels weird. Yeah, I mean that these are just this is just a theory. I mean, this right. is just an idea right. because of course, you I there. truly do believe that Reverend Kelly saw something. Yeah. And that's what brought him into the house in the first place. Because mm-hmm. I don't think he normally would go into a house. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the only way that the things that he knew and the things that we know of that happened, how he got blood on his shirt. Yep. The fact that he knew things about the murders that no one else did is because he went into the house. Sure. Well, the only reason he would have gone in is if he had seen something happen and then saw the person who had done it leave. I like to imagine, and this is terrible, like black comedy stuff, but the Billy the Axeman looking out the window and he's just underneath, like yeah, against hiding. the house. Yeah, yeah. yeah kind of pressed which is Which was doable. If you see the house, it sits up just far enough that you could... Well, he's also three feet tall. Well, right. You could, for his height, you could see in, mm-hmm. but you could also very easily hide right below the window right. because he's so short. Right. So we believe that he uh, went in... Uh, and he was the one that covered the mirrors because that was a kind of really out of character. Um, the mirrors weren't usually covered, just the windows were. Right. For, for logical reasons. Sure. You know. And uh, positions the young girl, gets blood on his shirt that he later took to Council Bluffs. Uh, and you say, you don't think that Billy stopped killing one day, his thirst for blood finally quenched. You believe that he was forced to do so by death, suicide, accident, or imprisonment. Um, and then he took his secrets to the grave and... I just want to say, speaking of Grave and Beyond, we do have one more episode left at the end we of the season where we're going to talk about your experiences in that house and the kind yeah. of history and, of what's and going lots on of other there. people's experiences. It's not just mine. Did you ever um, find that footage you were talking about of the door? I stuff? do have it. I've got a DVD of it, nice. so I will bring it to you. Awesome. So, yeah, and that's going to be the last episode. That will be of our last season. episode. Will be the many ghost stories that surround. Uh, what I consider to be one of the most haunted places in America, really? which is the Velisca or the Moore House. Yeah, yeah. When you, I mean, when you say that, I, you know, I don't yeah. take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I, there are lots and lots of haunted places around the country, but mm-hmm. I, I've always put it in my top ten. Really? Yeah. Can you give me just, like, I'm not going to ask for too many spoilers or anything. Um, did it feel heavy, evil, It depends on upsetting? when you're there. Yeah? There have been times when the house is, uh, that I've been there. And I found the house felt very heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and those seem to be the nights that the most activity has occurred. And then I've been there other times where it doesn't feel like anything at all. Interesting. Uh, but I've been there lots of times over the years. And there have been, I've had some personal experiences. And there are many, many, many people who also have. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, um, it's an interesting spot. It awesome. really is. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. And especially to see um, whatever footage stuff you have. I know you yeah. told me the story, but I'm yeah, excited to see it. Yeah. And uh, for everybody that, you know, I know people love true crime or people that love the ghost stuff, too. We're going to dive back into yep. that. And we will. We have one more episode. This will be the episode I think a lot of people have been waiting for, as I mentioned. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about the ghost stories that are connected to the Velisca house and, um, you know, kind of wrap things up. Mm-hmm. This will be the end of the uh, season three. 
It, so. You know, I love doing this stuff, but also I'm going to be happy to not think about axe murders and yeah, for a while. Yeah, for a little bit. And do something does, else. Does it, Although we will have some axe murders in our oh next God, season, no, I know. as it's, it turns it's, out. I think, so. it's, I think it's just the intense focus <laughs> on one subject. But right. if I can bounce around and say, well, I'm able to displace a yes. little bit of it. Yes. Does it. That's a good question, though. Does it ever... Uh, does it ever fuck with you? Like writing the the book about murdered children and things like does that, that one, ever that really one get did. to you eventually? Uh, I've had a few books that I've written that have bothered me a little bit. Um, you know, you can usually set it aside and it's part of work. But mm-hmm. the um, the book I did about murdered children that suffer the children, uh, that was one that, that really got to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the book I wrote about uh, Marion Parker that uh, I just want to come home tonight. Uh, about this little girl that was cut up into pieces and at, at ransom. That one really was depressing. The Grime Sisters book that I wrote was depressing. Um, Renee and I wrote a couple of books about American disasters mm-hmm. that we had written. You know, people who you know, uh, terrible. You know, hundreds of people die in a fire, kind of thing. And yeah. after a while, that gets to you. She said she used to um, dream and would wake up at night and think she smelled smoke in her house while she was writing some of the stories about fires. And oh, so, man. yeah, after a while, this stuff can get to you if you spend a lot of time on one particular subject. I mean, it hasn't. It hasn't bothered me like it has you doing it for the podcast because I'd already written the book. Right. right. Uh, but writing the book was was tough. And it did, you know, it brought some of that stuff back, you know, putting together episodes for the podcast and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, it can be distressing. Sure. You know, you know, I, I definitely I think about this stuff a lot more and uh, sometimes I'll dream about it. And I know. Leah listens to every episode and it, right. it really right. upsets her. And, I know it. And she's, you know, she'll say like. You know, I'm worried that I'm going to die. And I'm like, well, yeah, one day you are. <laughs> right. And it doesn't right. make her feel any better. Yeah, you um, just don't want to worry about being, you know, beaten to death with a blunt sure, side of an axe. And, and I mean, you know, it's, it makes. While you're sleeping. It makes me uh, not a good candidate for uh, cocktail conversation, you know, and people are like, hey, what are you working on right now? I'm like, well, yeah, well actually. Welcome to my life. Talk, yeah, talking <laughs> yeah. about these axe murders. <laughs> what kind um, of books do you write? Oh, God, you don't even want to know. Yeah. So. What's your podcast about? And I'm like, well. <laughs> Or, you know, have a whole family bludgeoned to death outside of an axe. And I don't know why I don't make friends. It's so weird. Um, but, yeah, we're going to pick up in two weeks uh, with, with our the last story. episode of season three. Yes. Yeah. The finale and the and yeah. season three. And are we going to announce season four then or is it going to no, be after that? We're going to do it after that. So oh, two weeks so later, you will, get, do it. you will get the trailer for season four and an introduction to the episode. I'm so excited. Before Halloween. Because, so of course, excited. we'll have our. Halloween episode for this year, which oh, yeah. will be different. And then we're going to jump right into season four. Yeah. We're not going to, no, no delays no between breaks. seasons this time. We're not taking a break. So no. we're going to go right from, uh, you know, our Halloween episode right into season four yes. in November. No so, rest for the wicked. That's right. Cool. So we have a couple Patreon shout outs uh, to give out. And again, when you uh, donate on Patreon, it helps us kind of produce even more episodes on the off weeks and make T-shirts and, and fun bonus right. content. And, and we did talk about we do have new equipment we're going to be starting with um, in season four. That's thanks to you. So Right. Exactly. Thanks to our Patreon people. So if you are, again, one of those people who complained about the sound. Um, you can thank the Patreon people yes. for that because we're going to be, we have been working on it and we're going to be delving into it even more in season four. Yep. Uh, going to be a completely new sound. Yep. I'm really excited for that. So check it out at patreon.com slash American hauntings. So the shout outs that we have right now are, are for uh, Tamsin, Nick, Jim, and Rebecca. So thank you so much for donating to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. 
Okay, well, let's wrap up this episode, our second to last episode of season three. Um, thank everybody. I, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you guys have been great through this entire season. I know that in a lot of ways you have indulged my uh, fascination with uh, axe murders and all kinds of stuff and let us continue on with a season that didn't have a lot of ghosts in it. Um, next episode we'll have ghosts, but I promise next season is going to be uh, a heavy ghost season. So we'll really be uh dishing them up for you next time around. So thank you. We, we hope that you'll share this with your friends and uh, give us a review on iTunes. Um, for a while, I was going to tell Cody, I thought today we were going to be recording and me saying, hey, listen, you guys have really been slacking off in the reviews. But then we got a whole bunch more that we talked about in our last episode. So um, leave us a review on iTunes. It, it, it on does. Batches, it it, it like. does. And it really does help us out. Um, it just it spreads things to iTunes that says that, you know, a lot of people are listening to the show. So the more that you can do, um, we, we would really appreciate it. So anyway, that uh, is the end. So if you are listening and you want to find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, if you've got comments or suggestions or jokes, pass them along. Uh, until next time. Can I just tell you uh, real quick? That's all I got. That's the end of the show. Really? This episode of American Hauntings Damn Podcast it. was written by Troy Taylor and is produced Sucker and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast, and each episode has an ending, Troy. You can hear new uh, yeah, episodes no, every I, other I, Tuesday. It takes so too long to get there. Please tune in to hear our latest episodes and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast. Podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings. Although what they or are, you can I go don't to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Really so I'd be curious. We also have so. links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, Troy's jokes, and the Haunted American Troy's Conference, jokes. all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast Again, by checking out our Patreon page. Thank you page. to our Patreon thank people. Thank you so much. Yes. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, better sounding shows, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Haunting. I mean, it really literally takes a minute. Just look it's at just, it. Yeah, if you just look at it's it. It's just a I minute. I mean, we have things that are like a dollar. Just I mean, a, seriously. Just a minute. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, or reviews of Troy's jokes, be sure to pass <laughs> them the along. I'm not the one with the jokes. That's you. Until next time. Goodbye. So, so long. long. See you later. See you later.